When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, we'll talk about Donald Trump's childhood, one of the subjects of the new blockbuster bestseller by Mary Trump, the daughter of Donald's brother, Fred Jr. Our Amy Willens will comment. But first, it's time to talk about the current economic crisis and life in the age of corporate power. That's the subject of a wonderful new book by David Dayan. It's called Monopolized. David is executive editor of the American Prospect. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, Huff Post, and many other places. And he also writes Unsanitized, a daily report on COVID-19 that is indispensable. We reached him today at home in Venice, California. David Dayan, welcome back. Thanks. The news today is that the HEALS Act has been introduced by Republicans in the Senate. It's a trillion dollars worth of economic assistance subject to negotiations, not only in the Senate, but more importantly in the House. But what is in the, the first draft of the HEALS Act? Not nearly enough, given that the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and we see economic activity already falling off from the meager recovery that we had in May and June uh, as cases surge, and many elements of the CARES Act, which was the original bill in March to have a response to the coronavirus crisis, are expiring, Uh, one of them being unemployment insurance, another being a, a federal moratorium on evictions. And yet, this new bill does not fill in the blanks very well at all. It cuts the boost that uh, the federal government has been giving to unemployment assistance from $600 a week to $200 a week. So uh, that's as much as a 50% decrease for 25 million people who are uh, uh, applying and getting unemployment insurance right now. That's going to have a huge economic impact uh, and a negative one. Some other things that are in the bill, there's another one-time set of uh, uh, stimulus payments, $1,200. There is some money for schools, although some of it is is tied to whether or not the schools reopen. There's uh, some money for testing and vaccines and hospitals. But the thing that uh, Republicans seem to be most concerned about is uh, liability protection for businesses to protect them from lawsuits from workers or consumers who happen to contract COVID-19 on their premises. 
there are a couple things to say about this. Number one, there are no such lawsuits. I mean, there's almost no such lawsuits happening right now. Uh, this is a fake issue that uh, has, has very little to do uh, with the reality that people are going through. And second of all, it's just perverse that at a time where you have this incredible economic pain, the thing that Mitch McConnell is really worried about is uh, whether lawsuits uh, against businesses who are negligent uh, will have to be conducted. So uh, it just shows you the priorities of the Republican caucus. And uh, th th this bill is just, just comes up woefully short uh, as to what the severe needs are out there in the country. Liability protection for employers, one aspect of life in the age of corporate power, the subject of David Dayen's new book, Monopolized. So uh, let's talk about monopoly power in America. We, we all know that Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple have way too much power, but, but isn't big tech an extreme case of monopoly? Isn't there a lot more to the economy than, than big tech where there's more competition? Go yeah, Google is the only search engine. Amazon dominates, you know, mail order delivery, but but let's take one of my favorite examples from, from your book, dating apps. There's lots of dating apps. We have freedom to choose. That's, that's the glory of capitalism. Well, they're all part of the same company, actually. Uh, and that's, that's one of the themes of the book, is uh, that we have an illusion of choice when, in reality, all of these different brand names fall under the same corporate umbrella. And that's true in uh, what you just talked about, dating apps. It's true in ski resorts. It's true in peanut butter and jelly. It's true in rental cars and hotel rooms and, and, and you name it. The truth is that if we broke up Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple tomorrow, we would still have a terrible monopoly problem in this country because we still have an unbelievable amount of businesses and sectors that are controlled by very few numbers of corporations, and they use that to their advantage uh, in a variety of ways, uh, immiserating workers, stopping entrepreneurship and startups from uh, moving forward, uh, creating regional inequality where all the wealth of cities are moved into these, these winner-take-all areas. There are so many ways in which monopoly power really harms our economy and, and more so our society. And so what I wanted to do with this book is, is really go out into the population when you could do that. Remember travel? That was fun. Uh, when you could do that, I, I went out and talked to people about how corporate power was affecting their lives uh, directly. And not just because they have to pay a little bit more for cable, but, but the, the real ways as, as workers, as entrepreneurs, as citizens, it affected their lives. You have a chapter with the wonderful title, Monopolies are why a farmer's daughter is crying behind the desk of a best Western. That sounds like a movie, but it's based on a fact. That's right. Uh, I, I traveled to Iowa and I talked to a bunch of farmers there who are dealing with big agriculture. And one of the things this is doing is it's preventing people who uh, are third, fourth, fifth generation farmers who want to carry on that tradition from being able to do so. So that woman is the daughter of a guy named Chris Peterson, who's a, a multi-generation hog farmer in uh, Clear Lake, Iowa. 
And he told me this story about how his, his daughter, you know, was unable to carry on this tradition, went out, uh, you know, got a job at a hotel at a Best Western and, and was telling her, him this story about her tough day. And then she just sort of broke into tears and said, Dad, all I want to do is farm. And the truth is, is that these large monopoly interests in agriculture prevent the small farmer from being able to carry that on and and have concentrated that from every aspect. We're not just talking about farms in terms of produce or livestock. We're talking about every aspect of food and, and the way it gets to your table. And uh, this is really ripping out the fabric of these societies, of, of these rural farm towns of, uh, you know, he told me this story about how local areas would be sort of main streets would be the gathering place and there'd be a lot of activity and vibrancy. And that's all dead now uh, because because farmers can't compete and you have these giant concentrated animal feeding operations that are taking the place of small family farms in areas like Iowa and those people are absentee owners. They, they don't go into town to hang out with their friends or anything. So uh, it, there's a community aspect of this and there's a family aspect of this that goes well beyond what we normally talk about when we talk about monopoly power. One of your key chapters is titled Monopolies Among Banks are Why There Are Monopolies Among Every Other Economic Sector. But, but why are there monopolies among banks? Isn't that just the logic of capitalist competition, that the more successful enterprises defeat the less efficient enterprises? Well, uh, uh, more of uh, the logic of capital, or at least regulated capitalism, as we put together that system in the 20th century, was that uh, competition is, is generally healthy for uh, consumers and for the economy and for society. Uh, uh, however, banks used their, their economic power, converted it in political power and made sure that uh, they, they could grow bigger, uh, you know, using, waging a, a 30 year campaign to get rid of the Glass-Steagall protections that separated investment and commercial banking. Uh, and that created these giant supermarket banks that ended up taking on too much risk in the crisis, but were too big to fail. Then uh, there were these almost shotgun weddings that the regulatory system uh, put together to make those big banks even bigger. And a large part of the bank uh, profit center is in what is called mergers and acquisitions, or M&A. So it's advising companies on whether or not to merge. And, and guess what they say? They say merge more so that they get hired more to be M&A bankers. Uh, they're the ones with the expertise and, and they, they continually say, get bigger, merge more, do more, more, uh, more things that, that we can advise on and even finance. So we have this like large sector of Wall Street that is dedicated to additional monopolization. Well, you say this is all not just the logic of capitalism. You see, there's actually one man who's more responsible for monopoly power in America than anybody else, and that is Robert Bork. But, but I thought Robert Bork was a failure. He you know, famously was defeated at his nomination for the Supreme Court. Right. He was a failed Supreme Court justice. Uh, however, prior to that, he completely revolutionized antitrust law without changing a word of any statute. Uh, Robert Bork 
uh, wrote a book called The Antitrust Paradox in 1978, and it was built on some ideas around the University of Chicago and the law and economics movement and a uh, very corporate-friendly theory of law. Uh, and what he said in that book, if you boil it down, was that mergers should be allowed as long as they make companies more efficient. And then the second half of that was companies that get bigger are always more efficient. So what this was was a recipe to never uh, uh, pose any merger of any kind. And this theory uh, essentially became part of the way in which the Justice Department uh, looks upon mergers. In the Reagan administration in 1982, they changed their merger guidelines to, to really reflect Bork's thinking. And also judges started to quote the antitrust paradox in their rulings. And so he created this revolution uh, 40 years ago, and, and it really has not uh, been altered very much since. Now we come to the inevitable question, what is to be done? You say that part is easy. We know what is to be done. Yeah, we know how to handle monopolies. We've done it throughout our history uh, prior to the last 40 years and, and, and getting it you know, cut short by Borkian analysis. We had the Sherman Antitrust Act. We had the Clayton Antitrust Act. We had Robinson-Patman, which was an anti-chain store law. We had seller Kefauver, which was another uh, anti-monopoly law. We have all sorts of examples of, of public options that are done uh, both at the federal and state level to promote competition, whether it was a public bank in North Dakota or uh, municipal broadband in cities all across the country. We know how to handle this. We know what to do. We don't have the political will. And that political will can be summoned by a social movement that comes from below. I give the example in the book of the country of Israel, which uh, you don't really, we don't talk about at all in the economic context ever. We talk about Israel in terms of Palestinian policy. But uh, Israel had as bad a monopoly problem as the United States not long ago. Uh, they had these tycoons that controlled like interlocking corporations, 60 or 70 corporations under one umbrella. And there was a movement that, that spilled out onto the streets. It started out being about high food prices and high housing prices, but it largely started to become about these tycoons and how they were holding down and sucking the life out of the economy. And there was as much as a half million people on the streets in Israel, in a country that's only about 11, 12 million people strong. And during a right-wing Benjamin Netanyahu government, they passed significant concentration laws, uh, anti-concentration laws, to break up these, these, these tycoons. A lot of them went to jail. Uh, and the most famous uh, uh, example of this was their changes to telecom policy, where cell phone rates, the, the price you pay for cell phones, went down 90%. So wow. <laughs> this can be done uh, if you have the, the power of the people behind it. And uh, we're starting to see that happen a little bit in America. We're, we're, we're going to see on Wednesday a, uh, a hearing by uh, the House Antitrust Subcommittee uh, with the CEOs of Apple, Facebook, Google, and Amazon. First time ever to have this concentration of wealth in, in, a, uh, in a hearing. And we're starting to hear more you know, from lawmakers, academics, uh, think tanks, scholars, 
about this problem because it is so pervasive and so critical. And it, it's sort of the problem that unlocks every other problem. Uh, you know, if it, you're talking about healthcare, or education, or transportation, whatever, uh, a lot of it goes back to corporate power. And uh, breaking that will will go a long way to breaking, uh, you know, opening up possibilities in, in these other areas. Well, I never knew that reading about monopoly power could be so much fun. Uh, to borrow an image from the book, reading monopolized is like putting on the sunglasses in John Carpenter's 1988 sci-fi classic, They Live. When people put on the sunglasses, they see the world in its true ugliness. Political and business elites are actually skinless, bulging-eyed aliens. And advertising includes bold, subliminal lettering demanding that subjects obey, consume, and submit. But I have to ask about sunglasses. Aren't there dozens of companies that make sunglasses? No. No, actually. There's only one. It's called Luxottica. It's an Italian firm. And pretty much every sunglass outlet, uh, eyeglass outlet that you see in America and around the world is is actually a part of Luxottica. So, uh, you know, it was an apt metaphor. Uh, and I love that metaphor. And I love that movie. Uh, and And really... You know, what I hope is that you have your eyes opened a little bit when reading Monopolize as to the extent of corporate power and concentration in this country and, and the fact that we can do something about it. David Dan's new book is Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. It's a really smart book about economics that's really fun to read. David, thank you for Monopolized and thanks for talking with us today. All right, John, thank you very much. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Trump family dysfunction told by Amy Willens. Amy, of course, is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and best known for her work on Haiti. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, today we're not going to talk about Ivanka and Don Jr. and little Eric. Instead, we're going to talk about Donald Trump's own childhood with his older brother Fred Jr., his sister Marianne, the one who became a federal judge, the other sister Elizabeth, and his younger brother Robert. Robert is the one who sued their niece, Mary Trump, daughter of Fred Jr., trying to stop publication of her new monster bestseller, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. First, tell us about Mary Trump, our author, the daughter of Donald's older brother. She's got an MA in English Lit and a PhD in clinical psychology. I guess that gives her standing to write about the emotional structure of their families. I guess so, although, you know, um, many writers have not had those degrees and have still written about the structures of their families. Philip Roth is one. I mean, family uh, dysfunction is a favorite topic of writers, and this is a great uh, book in that classic mode. And I feel really honored to cover two generations of this family. <laughs> I look well, forward to Arabella's memoirs. <laughs> well, Mary's father, Fred Trump Jr., he was called Freddie, was the number one son, the one picked by 
their father, Fred Sr., as a child, who the one who would be the head of the family real estate enterprises, Donald was son number two. Not a good position to be in, especially in a family like this. What do we know about Fred Sr.'s expectations for Fred Jr. and his other son, Donald, as kids? Well, what you would think is this is the royal family of England. I mean, the first one is the first chosen. The second one will take over if the first one falls out of line for any reason. So uh, Fred Sr., he's a great figure in that he's a literary type of figure. He's just completely obsessed with himself, completely obsessed with his ambition. And he is he's really a fortune builder in the traditional immigrant mold. I mean, he'll run you over, he'll do anything. And his ambition for Freddie, uh, his eldest son, was that Freddie would continue to uh, push the family legacy into the future uh, under, under um, Fred Sr.'s guidance, uh, if you can call it that, paternal guidance. Uh, but Freddie was really having none of it. I mean, he wanted to please his father, according to Mary. So all of this is according to Mary, which means, because Mary is Freddie's daughter, that a lot of it is according to Freddie. And as even described by Mary, Freddie is not the most reliable witness. So you, I mean, much as you want to take everything in Mary's book as the gospel truth, because it does fit into what you think about Donald and where such a creature could have come from, you have to look at it with a grain of salt. Freddie, the anointed son, uh, failed miserably at everything for his father and then finally died of alcohol-related problems at age 42. The daughter, Mary, the writer of the book, was only 16. I can tell you as a 16-year-old who also had a father, I didn't know much about him when I was 16. So it's unclear you know, what she knows. She did go back and do interviews. I mean, she, she tried to write a real book, definitely. Mary says that Fred Sr. wanted little Fred Jr. to learn about lying, cheating, and doing whatever was necessary to promote the business. And little Freddie tried, but he really, quote, wasn't that sort of person. He wasn't that sort of person. She says, and I believe it's true, that... Um, Although Fred Sr. really didn't care what happened to his daughters, uh, Marianne and Elizabeth, he did care about the sons, especially the first two. And he wanted Freddie to be a killer. That is the word that Mary uses to describe what was really sought by Fred and his sons. And as she says, a killer? She says, that seems an inappropriate thing to want from someone who is going around to housing units in Queens asking for rent. <laughs> but nonetheless, that is how he envisioned his sons. And, and Freddie was not that. The most vicious thing that she cites Freddie doing, other than secretly buying airplanes and boats behind his dad's back, is uh, dumping a pot of mashed potatoes onto Donald's head when Donald was a little boy. <laughs> and it was richly deserved because, she says... Donald was, as usual, tormenting his teeny little brother, Robert. And he would take Robert's Tonka trucks, Robert's favorite, favorite toy, and he would hide them all over the house so that Robert couldn't find them. And then he would go like, I know where they are, but you don't know where they are. And then Robert would cry and throw tantrums and Donald would freak that the parents would find out. So he would say, be quiet or I'm gonna take them apart in front of you. 
And then Robert would scream some more and go running to his mother. And finally, when Robert went, ran to his mother once, this is what the mother was like, he runs to Mary, that's the mother's name, and Mother Mary takes the Tonka trucks and puts them in the attic. So who won? Donald effectively won. He got the, the toys away from the little brother. It is just, just typical craziness in that family. I want to ask a little more about their mother, Mary Trump. I read that when Trump first moved into the Oval Office, he put up only one photo behind the Resolute desk, his father. But in several months later, he put up a photo of his mother. This suggests she was not the kind of mother that our recent presidents have had, you know, Barbara Bush, mother of George W., or Bill Clinton's mother, Virginia Kelly, or Obama's mother, Ann Dunham. These were mothers who were the the dynamos, the powerful forces pushing their children to to succeed in, in the world. It seems like Donald's mother, Mary Trump, was not in that mold. You know, there's a very good story that goes with that, which is uh, the family comes uh, to the White House to a dinner for Marianne and Elizabeth, who have nearby birthdays, to celebrate the women's birthdays, Donald's sister's birthdays. And it's the first time they've seen the Oval Office since he's been in it. And they see Fred Trump staring at them from behind the Resolute desk. And one of the girls, one of the aunts, so one of the women, says, why, how about mom's picture? Don't you think you could put that up? And he goes, like, as if he's never thought of it. Great idea. <laughs> and then he goes to some staffer, he goes, somebody get me a picture of my mom. <laughs> so that's how she joined Fred there. But she was um, absent. And she was absent from Donald's life at a very early moment where it was really important to have your mother around. She had either a miscarriage or a problem from uh, the final birth of Robert that hadn't been attended to. And she was found by Marianne, Marianne, age 12, in a bathroom, unconscious, bleeding. And so she was rushed to the hospital. She was saved, but it was touch and go. And from then on, she was really a little bit kind of batty. And they would find her, the children would find her on the top of a ladder, painting a hallway in the middle of the night, or from time to time unconscious in one room or another. I think she was having some mental problems and depression and you can't really tell, but she wasn't a touchy feely mom, even when she was present. And when Donald was, I think two and a half, when this hospitalization right. crisis occurred and, and I think she was- And you can't rely on the dad to take her place because he is unpresent in every way, except negatively. And, the, and his mother at age two and a half was in the hospital for like nine months. So at age two and a half, his mother disappeared for almost a year. We don't need Sigmund Freud to tell us. And we don't need Mary Trump to tell us, but she does tell us. You have to be held, you have to have response, you have to, and and, uh, dad was not that kind of person. Many dads at that time, I have to forgive Fred Trump a tiny bit because most dads I knew at that time were not like touchy-feely, kissy, diapery types of dads. And Donald Trump said, like, I'm never changing a diaper in imitation of his dad when his children were born. And they just, you know, so he was left alone. All the kids were left alone. So when Donald was 13, uh, his parents sent him to military school. It's a boarding school 60 miles from home. He wore a uniform. This is the kind of place where shoes have to be shined, beds have to be made, students are not allowed off campus during the week, no female students at the school. They 
learn how to fire rifles and mortars. They march around under tough drill sergeants. Why did Donald's parents decide to send him away when he was 13? All the kids went to this kind of local school for a while, and Donald's father, Fred, sat on the board of the school. So really, you could do no wrong as a Trump kid there, but Donald could. And finally, the school was uh, fed up, and they didn't say anything to him, but another board member said, maybe Donald would do better at the New York Military Academy. (laughs) Um, And, you know, Mary says what she heard from her grandmother, which was that Donald just never did anything the grandmother asked him to do, his mother asked him to do. He never cleaned up. He never did his chores. But he never, never was obedient or did anything he was supposed to, and he was a slob. And then he got booted to military academy. His mother never complained. She never said to her husband, no, no, as far as we know, I want Donnie home. No, off he went. And interestingly, after all of Mary's painting of Fred Sr. as this uncaring father who never paid attention to his boys and really never paid attention to his girls, Every weekend from eighth grade through senior year, Fred Trump Sr. went to visit Donald 60 miles away because he knew that this was a hard place for his kid to be. His kid got bullied for the first time and not being the bully. I mean, it must have been a very shocking experience for Donald. But I think that what it did was he figured out a way to cope there and to be the big bully and to, you know, march around in a uniform. They all like uniforms in that family. So we haven't really said anything about the sisters in this family. We know that Donald's older sister, Marianne, became a federal judge. Then there's this other one, Elizabeth, who we never hear anything about. Where did the daughters fit into this family? For Mary, her Aunt Marianne is a complicated figure. Uh, First of all, she's, of course, very intelligent and had a lot of hopes and she did what she wanted to do and she had to take out loans to go to law school, Mary Ann Trump, uh, because she wasn't given money for that at the time when she didn't have her hands on her money. She wasn't given money to go to school and she did it all on her own until she got her first judgeship, I believe, through her, through her brother's connections with Roy Cohen. That's what I understood from this book. But then she went on yes. to, to um, be a perfectly serviceable jurist, and Bill Clinton named her to the appeals court. So she's not a nobody. She's a serious person. And inside the family, she talked a little bit to Mary. She acted a little bit like some kind of familial glue in a family that really, for uh, a bunch of immigrants, was very waspy. You know, there was none of this warmth of the immigrant family that we so believe in in the United States. They didn't speak. The men shook each other's hands. They never showed any warmth. It was not an intimate situation in the family. And sometimes Marianne would breach that uh, code and speak to her niece. But you don't get that much of a feeling for her. And there's the Crisco can story. So this is an incredible story. Marianne... Uh, is a young adult at the time of this story. And she's living in a Trump building rent-free, and she has the Trump family health insurance. And she married a guy who, um, you know, had big plans like Donald, but they didn't 
ever happen. So he's unemployed and she has no money for her and the kids and they can't eat. This seems incredible to us, yes, with that money. But again, it is that no man's land where the rich kid doesn't have her hands on the money yet. So um, she goes to her mom and she says, she can't go to her dad because she knows she'll get nothing from him. She goes to her mom, she says, mom, I know it seems crazy, but I can't buy groceries. And her mother, and she says, how about, how about the Crisco can? And her mother says, okay. And her mother goes and gets the Crisco can, which is filled with, as Marianne knows, quarters and dimes and nickels. And why is it filled with that? Because it is the laundry money of the Trump empire. And Mrs. Trump, every weekend at that time, was going around to every building with her Crisco can and putting the money that the tenants had put into the laundry machines into what in a Jewish family would be a charity can <laughs> and putting it all in there, taking it home and using it as her petty cash. I guess she didn't get petty cash from her husband. And this is how Marianne fed her children for a good long time until she got rid of that husband. Unbelievable. The, the Crisco can. In the Trump family, a Crisco can for the laundry machines. And, and it's being done by the wife of the founder, not by an employee. And then there's this other person, Elizabeth. I barely even heard of her. The best story about Elizabeth in the book is uh, one of the grandparents is in the hospital. And Mary, who's not often seen by the family, comes to visit the grandparent in the hospital. And Elizabeth is there. And they're in the hallway together. And Elizabeth has a little package. And Mary thinks, my gosh, my family never gives presents except at Christmas on Christmas. And Elizabeth says to her, this is for you. And she takes it and, and Elizabeth tells her, she says, it's a Timex watch. Uh, you were given at age 10 and I felt you were too young to have anything so nice. So I took it. Now you have it. That's it. That's it for Elizabeth. Goodbye, Elizabeth. We don't hear from her again. And Marianne, in the end, uh, not so nice, is held responsible by Mary for the cutting off of health insurance for Mary's brother's son who has uh, a seizure issue. He's 21 now, but at the time he was a little boy uh, when the wills were read. And when Mary and Fritz, her brother, contested the will, which basically cut them out substantially from the family fortune, Marianne decided that a suitable punishment for them would be to cut them off from the family, the regular family health insurance that all Trumps received for their whole lives from the estate. They cut them out. Mary Trump, niece of the president, says about her uncle Donald, our president, quote, I can't really think of any way in which he's evolved or changed from the person he was when he was a teenager, close quote. You know, it's so easy to read the book and say, oh my God, he's just the way he was. It's almost as if she's made it that way, but you can't tell. I mean, when we all watch him, we feel that. We feel, everybody says the child in the White House, the toddler throwing tantrums. He feels like a baby you can't control, a teenager who stays out too late and doesn't call you. So, Mary Trump, trained psychologist, applies her professional training to her uncle in the White House. And her conclusion is, after his mother 
stayed in the hospital for almost a year when he was two and a half. He'd been abandoned by her, and then she was rather distant ever after that. His father failed to make him feel safe or loved or valued or mirrored. So Donald suffered deprivations as a child that would scar him for life, quoting from Mary Trump. This explains his personality traits, narcissism, bullying, and grandiosity. What do you think of the diagnosis? I would go a little bit like, yeah, that's true. And we see that in him all the time. But many, many kids suffer worse, far worse than just having a mom in the hospital and a not very caring, kind dad. And they are perfectly huge, full personalities who deal with life every day and love people and take care of people and don't abandon whole nations to pandemics. So I think you have to say that uh, Trump had a personality defect, possibly inherited from his dad or learned from his dad that went beyond these sad things that happened to the little boy. And I found it very hard in reading the book. And I'm a person who really cares about children. Any child you give me, I care about it. I found it hard to really sympathize with what she was claiming for her uncle because, because once you have that kind of power, you have to uh, get over your childhood trauma. And he can't, whatever, for whatever reason whatever limitations he has. She also says he has an undiagnosed learning disability, she believes, some severe learning disability that always held him back in reading and in curiosity. And that seems reasonable too. But yeah, she's right in looking at him now and, and then extrapolating back, but does one forgive? To me, that's a big question. I don't think she does. Mary Trump's book is, of course, called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Amy Willens is our reporter on Trump family dysfunction. Amy, this was a great one. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona... 
Time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.